I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 3. As many of you know, we've been uh, spending the last few weeks working through the Ten Commandments, and we've kind of got stuck on the Sabbath for a little bit. Uh, We've had uh, two messages where we've tried to think through what God's commandment to Israel was when he told uh, them that they must keep the Sabbath day holy to cease from all their rest. And then last time we spent some time uh, thinking through the theme of rest uh, in the Bible uh, and through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament and was thinking about being completed with our uh, messages on the Sabbath. But when I got home from church last Sunday and was uh, chatting with my kids Uh, following the service, uh, they asked me, Dad, are you going to be preaching more on the Sabbath? And uh, I said, I'm not sure yet. I'm still kind of thinking about it. And they said, well, you definitely should. You should preach more on the Sabbath. And I said, well, why why should I do that? Uh, And it came out they knew that I'd been studying Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and I just didn't get to it last week. And so they were saying, you know, you you should preach on Hebrews because you'd been been studying on it and thinking about it, and I think it would be good. And so I said, okay, I'll, th- I'll think about doing that. And I said, wait a second. You're just trying to delay me from getting to the fifth commandment. <laughs> so if you don't know the fifth commandment, it is honor your father and your mother. And so a day of reckoning is coming when we'll get to the fifth commandment, but until then, we do have Hebrews 3 and 4 to get through. And so we'll spend one more week thinking about this theme of rest as it fulfills the Sabbath. Let me read for you Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through chapter 4, verse 13. And it's a long, longer portion, and it's somewhat of a complex portion of Scripture, but I trust as we read it, you'll be able to pick up some of the main ideas. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, and in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's bow together in prayer and ask the Lord's help to understand his word. Father, we ask you this morning that you would take your holy word and teach us from it. We pray, Lord, that none of us would be counted among those who have hardened hearts, unwilling to hear you today. Pray, Father, whatever hardness resides in us, that you would soften away even now while we look at your word, that your spirit would be at work in all of us today. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that we might behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is there for us in him. And help us, Father, by your grace to enter that rest that he has offered to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I do think it's important to spend one more message considering uh, the rest that God gives us from this passage. It's one of the more important passages in the New Testament as it connects the Sabbath to the New Testament believer I think the key verse here for us is verse 9 of chapter 4. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And then verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. One of the reasons it's important for us to consider this passage as it relates to the fourth commandment is because when God gave the fourth commandment to Israel that Seventh day that they were to keep and set apart unto the Lord and keep it holy, doing no work on that day. To not keep that commandment came with serious consequences. It came with the consequence that for the individual, if they did not keep the Sabbath day, it was punishable by death. And you see that in the Pentateuch when there was a man who gathered sticks on the Sabbath day. And he was executed because he broke the Sabbath. It was important for Israel to keep it, not just individually, but corporately, because if they did not keep it corporately, then they would face exile. 
And that's exactly what happened to them. They did not keep the Lord's Sabbaths, and so they faced exile out of the land of promise and had to endure 70 years outside of the land while God said the land would have its Sabbath rest. So as you think about the serious consequences of not keeping the Sabbath, the question should come to us in this church, are there any serious consequences for not keeping the Sabbath now in the New Testament age? And the answer to that is yes, there is. We don't keep the Sabbath in the same way that the Israelites kept it. We don't have to keep the seventh day But there is a Sabbath that we are called to enter into. And if you do not enter into that Sabbath rest, then there are dire consequences. We've looked at how the Lord Jesus Christ, as he said in Matthew 5, that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That he has indeed fulfilled the Sabbath. Because he is the one who offers true rest. As we saw last time, the kind of rest that God always intended to give was a a full-orbed, comprehensive rest, not rest just on one day of the week, but a rest that permeated the entirety of the lives of his people. And the Lord Jesus, when he came, came offering rest. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give rest to your souls. That's the kind of rest that Jesus fulfills in himself and that he offers. As you kind of look at the ministry of Jesus, he has a lot of ministry that he does on the Sabbath, the literal seventh day. Oftentimes, his activities on the Sabbath would stir up controversy with the local leaders because he would do things that they thought were unlawful to do on the Sabbath. He would go into a synagogue, and there was a withered man, and a man with a withered hand in Matthew 12. And all the leaders of the synagogue are there watching what Jesus would do, thinking that it's unlawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath because that would constitute work. But Jesus asks the question, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? And Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath day, proving that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and the one who gives true rest. And indeed, it is not wrong to do good on the Sabbath. That's the very nature of what God is and does. He is good. And so, of course, his son is going to do that. And as he healed that man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, he begins to show what true rest looks like. Giving back the man this use of his hand is part of Sabbath keeping. Because until that day, that man had to rest with a withered hand every seventh day. That's not real rest. And Jesus gives the beginning of real rest to this man, showing he is the Lord of the Sabbath, showing he has a kind of rest that is comprehensive. And of course, the rest that he offers goes beyond that because he gives rest to souls. And the way that he does that is by alleviating us of the great affliction of our soul, which is sin. Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday, the sixth day of the week. And there on that cross at noon, on that day, darkness covered the land. 
And for three hours, darkness was there present. And as he hung on that cross, he became sin, enduring the wrath of the Father against sin as Jesus stood in as the perfect substitute, the atoning sacrifice for the sin of his people. And he did the work of propitiation. He did the work of redemption. He did the work of reconciliation on the cross. So much so that the end of those hours on the cross, as the darkness now lifted, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hurling out from his heart the scream of what it's like to be afflicted with the wrath of God. And following that, he then declared, it is finished, marking the fact that he paid the full price for sin on the cross. And after that, he said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And he breathed out his last and he died. And he finished his work there on the sixth day. On the seventh day, his body is there in the tomb. And on the first day of the week, he rises in glorious resurrection, offering salvation to all who would believe in him. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and the one who offers true life and true rest to all who would believe in him. These passages in Hebrews are really an offer and a reminder that Jesus Christ is true salvation, and apart from him, there is nothing. There is no rest. There is nothing good. That's really the theme of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews could be summarized, as I've heard it summarized before, in three words. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what? Well, better than angels, better than Moses, better than the Levitical priesthood, better than the law, better than the sacrifices that are offered again and again. Jesus is better in a comprehensive way. That's the way the book starts out in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, which says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." This book starts off with exalting the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. He is the final revelation of God to mankind. He reveals everything we need to know about God. And he offers salvation because he's the one who made the sacrifice at the cross for sins. And so, the author of Hebrews goes on to extol the greatness of Jesus Christ by saying he's greater than angels. But really, the Trust of this book is to speak to a people who have heard the message of Jesus. In the original context, it was a, a group of Jews who had heard about the salvation that's offered in Jesus, and they heard about it, they've tasted some of the goodness of what the salvation is in Christ, but now they are reconsidering and thinking, maybe we should go back to Judaism, maybe we should follow those ways. And the author of Hebrews is at pains to show the audience of Hebrews that there is no one else and nothing else besides Jesus that can save. 
And so in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he gives the exhortation of the book. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's telling those who would hear him that if you refuse Jesus, then you refuse salvation. If you find that you don't have Jesus, then you find you don't have salvation at all. Where would you be without Jesus? That's the whole point of this book. And at the beginning of chapter 3 of Hebrews, the author goes on to describe Jesus as being greater than Moses. Moses is one of the greatest figures of the Old Testament. And yet, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says that Jesus is counted of worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Because Moses was a servant, and Jesus is the Son. And so Jesus is greater. And as the author turns into the portion that we're considering in the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4, he continues to pursue the main theme that if we neglect the great salvation that is in Christ, we have none. And he shows us by pointing us back to what happened in that generation of Moses, that when they neglected the salvation offered to them, they faced the consequences. So too we, if we neglect the salvation offered to us in Christ, we will face the consequences. And the main takeaway as it relates to the Sabbath is this, that the kind of Sabbath rest the Christian is to pursue is not primarily a day that you take off, but it is the kind of rest that is accessed through Jesus Christ, the comprehensive rest, the salvation that he gives us. It's not primarily about a day that you keep, but a Savior that you trust. And because there is a salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ, we need to stay away from sin's deception and trust and obey the one who is there for us and offers us salvation. Let me give you bit of an overview of the themes of chapter 3 and 4, and I hope you have your Bibles open because this will be something you want to look at as we work through this, and I hope that as we do, the Spirit will be at work in your own heart, helping, to, helping you to understand this passage. But this is one of those passages I find when I read it, I just have to slow down and think through it with some care because it's so full of theology, so full of riches, and we certainly can't dive into all of those today. But it's one of those kind of passages that uses a lot of therefores and senses and fors and becauses and lests. And so it makes you think of how the language that he's using connects one idea to another. And that's one of the reasons it's complicated, because you're trying to follow his argument in this flow of thought. But let me break it down first by thinking through some of the major themes that are here in this passage. The first theme that's here is the theme of Psalm 95. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 repeatedly. Every time in your Bible, at least in mine, it indents when Psalm 95 is referred to because it's a poem. And you can see that the author 
repeatedly uses the psalm and he uses it at the, as the pillar or the support of his argument. We won't go there, but if you looked up Psalm 95 in your Bible, you would find that it's really a psalm with two halves. The first half is extolling the greatness of God, reminding his people that we are his sheep and the people of his pasture. And then there's an abrupt shift in tone from exaltation of the goodness and greatness of God to a warning, a message of warning. And that's the portion that the author of Hebrews quotes And the reason that he is using Psalm 95 is because he sees it as having an enduring message that is relevant to his audience. Because this psalm addresses the failures of the wilderness generation and the consequences that they faced because of their sinful disobedience and unbelief. And because the audience of the book of Hebrews, is a group of Jews who've been given the gospel message and are thinking of turning back. They need to have a historical kind of warning addressed to them. And so it really supports the whole of his book and the whole point he's making in these chapters. But there's another reason he uses this, and that's found in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. The author of Hebrews recognizes that Scripture is powerful in and of itself because it has the authority of God to reach into the heart and soul of each person and show what's there. And so the Use of Psalm 95 is the use of a living word, the living scripture, to pound home the message that's being communicated here. It's living, it's active, it's always relevant and always pertinent for those who have ears to hear. That's one theme, is the use of Psalm 95. Another theme in this section is the emphasis on today. Emphasis on today. Did you notice that as we read through it, that came up repeatedly? Look again at chapter 3, verse 7. It says, today, if you hear his voice. Look at 3, verse 13. It says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Or verse 15. It says, today, if you hear his voice. Or chapter 4, verse 7, once again says, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward. The point of this is that these truths and exhortations that are found in this passage of Scripture have meaning at present, right now. It was both the now of when Psalm 95 was written, both the now of when uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 was written, and the now as it is being read to you and explained to you. We're not living in yesterday, we're living now, today, and because this is active right now, you should be paying attention to it right now, thinking about how this pertains to you. This is such an important concept because we can come to the scriptures, we can come to the Bible and think, well, this is an old book, 2,000 years old at least, if not more, written to ancient people who had a totally different way of life, wouldn't even be able to barely relate to them given all the differences in technology and customs and manners. In some ways that's true, not in other ways it's not. But the enduring truth is this. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. God isn't done speaking in this world. He speaks through his word and he wants people to hear now. And because you are here listening to this, you have a reckoning to make as to whether you are going to hear it, believe it, and trust it, and obey it, or dismiss it. But again, the charge is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's another theme, is the emphasis on today. Another theme that comes up is the theme of rest. Again, you can just trace your finger through this. In verse 11 of chapter 3, it says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Or chapter 4, verse 1 says, While the promise of entering his rest still stands. Or verse 3, they shall not enter my rest. Again, verse 4, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Or verse 8, again, the theme of rest comes to the foreground if Joshua had given them rest. Or verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest. Or verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Amidst all the complexities of it, it's not hard to miss that one. Or not easy to miss that one, rather. The theme of rest is right there on the surface. What's he talking about when he's referring to this rest? Well, you need to notice that it is called my rest. And that's God speaking. It's God's rest. And that this rest has been available since the creation of the world. It's ongoing. It's an offer that's available to enter into the rest that God gives. And I think it's similar, if not synonymous, with what is said in chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's very similar, if not the same idea in its details about being saved from sin and finding rest in Jesus Christ and all that he has to offer for us. It's about following and trusting and believing in Christ and receiving what he has to give us. That's what's being referred to when he's referring to rest. There's one more theme that goes through these verses, and that's the theme of warning. The theme of warning. In chapter 3, verse 7, again, it's the warning today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Or verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Or again, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You hear the tone of warning throughout this. This runs through the whole thing. There's an urgency about what's being communicated here. And it's calling on those who would hear to take this to heart, that there's a seriousness about the message being proclaimed. And the reason for the seriousness is because there have been past generations who knew of God's offer and availability of rest, And yet, through sin and unbelief, they did not know God's rest. 
But because the offer still stands today, since it's still being offered today, we are warned not to harden our hearts like they did theirs toward God's offer, or rather receive it by faith, the kind of faith that results in obedience to God. Those are the main themes in this passage, the theme of the warning, the theme of rest, the theme of today, the theme of Psalm 95. Let's take a few moments and see how these are woven together through this passage. And I think as we do this, you'll see that there are three movements of thought. Despite all the complexities of it, there are really just three ways, three ideas the author is communicating. He communicates them deeply and profoundly, but I think we can follow along with them. The first thought is the historical example of a people who did not, obey, who did not enjoy God's rest. The historical example of a people who did not enjoy God's rest. Back to chapter 3, verse 7. He quotes the Holy Spirit, and then he goes into Psalm 95. And as he says this, that the, the Holy Spirit says, he's reminding us that this example carries with it a kind of authority. Because this is from God himself, the third person of the Trinity who is speaking. And so, of course, we have to listen spoken by the Spirit, as all Scripture is. And it's an illustration, a Spirit-given illustration, of hardened hearts. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This uh, example is bringing us back to that time in Israel's history when they were in the wilderness, having been brought out of slavery in Egypt And they're faced with a dilemma of no food and no drink. And even though they've seen all of God's mighty works, seen his mighty deliverance and victory over the Egyptians, seen him splitting open the Red Sea, they come to grumble and complain against God. And they demand from God, give us water to drink? Or have you brought us out here to die? And the people are incensed at God's delay in giving them water. And it becomes a a point of testing the Lord, where they become, in a sense, the superiors who are demanding of God as their inferior to do what they want of Him. And as God saw this kind of heart generate among the Israelites, He refers to it as a a time of testing. He refers to it as hardened hearts. He refers to it as rebellion and as going astray in their heart, and not knowing my ways. And this wasn't just a one-time instance. It's not like Israel just went through that one water instance, and then after that they were fine. It was a generation-long dilemma for them. Because... We know their resistance to the Lord and His ways continued through the golden calf, through refusing to go into the land, and through quarreling with Moses. And so this wasn't just a one-time thing. This was a heart-level problem. And so as God looked at this generation that had a heart that was hardened towards Him and His ways, who did not 
trust him. His response was, verse 11 of chapter 3, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They provoked him to such a degree that he became wrathful towards them. God's wrath is not like man's wrath. Man's wrath just gets so easily provoked. And we get annoyed by somebody cutting us off in traffic or having a red light that has no thought of itself and we get furious with it and our wrath gets poured out with the worst kind of language. But when God's wrath comes about, it is a thoughtful, reasonable, appropriate response to hardened hearts that have rejected Him as God. And as He has this wrath towards the people that he brought out of Egypt, he makes an oath. He says, they shall not enter my rest. It's a settled word. And there's no going back on this. And it was true. That whole generation died in the wilderness and did not get to go into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. They died, bodies strewn everywhere in the wilderness over the course of 40 years, and they did not get to enter except for two who were faithful to him and trusted him. God made the oath, and he kept it. This historical example might just sound like that, Well, that's great for them, or not so great for them, rather. But what does that have to do with us? Well, that brings us to the second line of thinking from the author of Hebrews. He draws this to a point in verse 12. It makes us become aware that we need to be sure that we don't have the same unbelieving heart as that generation did. So he says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. They are to be on guard, not so much to what's on the outside and the dangers around them, but on the inside, what's going on in their heart, the evil, unbelieving heart that can exist in them. To be evil is to want and think things that are wrong, that are against God. To be unbelieving means to not trust the God who is completely trustworthy. This is the kind of heart that leads people to depart from the living God. Israel, the generation that the author of Hebrews is referring to, or Psalm 95 is referring to, is that generation that saw all those wonderful things God did as he rescued them from the Egyptians. They saw his mighty hand. They saw water from the rock. They saw manna in the wilderness. They saw all these things, and yet their heart was still hardened through unbelief manifesting itself in sin. And for the original audience of Hebrews, a people who have heard about the great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in Him, forgiveness of sins, they are being tempted like that original generation was to have a hardened heart towards the great gift of God. Do we think we're exempt 
from that temptation? We of all people who have heard the gospel, who have the scriptures, who know something of the goodness of the fellowship of the saints, are in the most precarious position to reject the grace of God because it's been preached to us, it's been displayed to us, it's been explained to us. And so we of all people should hear this warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This is such a serious thing that the, it's not just the individual that's supposed to watch out, but we as a group are to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This was a passage that, for some reason, just kind of latched on to me in my early 20s. Uh, maybe it could kind of uh, make it akin to when you're walking through um, kind of a forest or a woodsy area, and you come out and there's those burrs that are stuck on you. And, uh, well, where did that come from? Well, this is one of those passages that, for some reason, just through my college days, it just kind of latched on to me. It is such a, a serious urging on the saints, on God's people, a calling that we have towards one another, that we have to exhort one another, not just kind of as we feel like it, not just here and there, but every day, as long as it is called today. And guess what today is called? It's called today. And guess what tomorrow is going to be called when it comes? Today. It's something that we need to give ourselves to, an exhortation of one another, because it is so serious, the danger that we can fall into. Have you ever seen someone who's become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin? Have you seen that happen? Maybe some of you have, maybe some of you haven't. It's a horrible thing. It's like a, a venom that gets inserted into somebody. And it could start really lightly. It could be somebody just entertaining some doubts and thinking, yeah, there's some legitimacy to these doubts that I have. Or it could be an indulgence in some sort of sin, something as simple as complacency or laziness. And letting that kind of get injected into your heart. But the thing with this venom is it kind of swirls around and it calcifies your heart if it doesn't go unchecked or if it does go unchecked. And pretty soon what looks so innocuous, so simple, so innocent at the beginning has reared its ugly head to completely harden that person so that now they're indifferent to the things of God and they have nothing to do with that anymore. And they don't want anything to do with God's people and they don't want anything to do with Christ. Or maybe they just give him lip service and he's, he's there kind of in the background, but not nearly what he demands of the world when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, requiring complete and total devotion to him. And that becomes completely absent from the life that has fallen prey to the deception of sin. And so what's the antidote to this? Well, the antidote is for God's people to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is to happen as long as it is called 
today. Hardness of heart really matters. It matters because the goal of God is not to just get people to trust Him one time and get their name in the book of life and then that's it, you're good to go, you're all set, smooth sailing from here. The goal of God is to see His people trust Him, trust His Son every day. Verse 14 is a crucial verse. It says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is one of the best verses for the doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints, which simply teaches that those who are truly saved will endure in faith until the end. This verse says, hear it again, We have come to share in Christ. That's a perfect verb. We have come. It means a past action that has continuing results. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Meaning that if you do not hold your original confidence firm to the end, it will show that you had never come to share in Christ in the first place. Those who don't finish the race in Christ never really started the race in Christ. You have to hold your original confidence firm to the end. This is why it matters how we engage with one another regarding sin in each other's lives. And the author points us back to Psalm 95 saying, Today, if you hear his voice. Hey, don't... Some of us get so kind of caught up in our past. We think, well, I had this amazing conversion experience. It was just phenomenal. Uh, and, you know, I, as soon as I got saved, I just, I, I read the Bible like crazy. I shared my faith. I was there at church every, every week. Every time the doors were open, I was there. And, uh, you know, right after I got saved, it was just like this flurry of activity. It was wonderful. It was delightful. I'm not like that anymore. But when I first got saved, that's the way I was. This doesn't say yesterday when you heard his voice. It says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We can't rest on past laurels and think, that's it, I'm good to go. It's today. Today. We live in today. Not in yesterday, not in tomorrow, but today if you hear his voice. This is actually really good news. Because if it is still today, then God's rest remains for some to enter, and we should strive to enter it. That's really the third line of thinking. Yes, he uses Psalm 95 to give us an historical example, and then he helps us to see that we need to take care take heed of the warning, but we have to also thirdly understand that because it is still today, God's rest remains for some to enter, and we should strive to enter it. In verse 16, he asks the question, who are those who heard and yet rebelled? And he brings us back to that idea that it was the generation that saw all those amazing actions who were led out by Moses that heard and yet rebelled. 
And so it brings to a point the seriousness of the unbelief that they endured. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, he draws the conclusion, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The good news, at least for the original audience there, was that the door hadn't completely shut. Yes, they were being tempted. Yes, they were being drawn away. But the author is saying, the promise of entering his rest still stands. The door is not closed. It's still available. And that's where we stand today. Because the gospel is still being offered today. And so what should you do today? Well, you should fear. What should you fear? You should fear a heart of unbelief. You should fear a God who swears in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You should fear a God who swears that when he sees a continual provoking hardness of heart. And if you have that kind of fear, it's not too far gone. There's still today. We should strive to enter, to press on, realizing that God offers this rest, this gracious Sabbath rest, you know, we don't have time to get into the details and complexities of those middle verses of chapter 4. But we can understand a few things about this. That there is the original rest that God came into on that seventh day of creation. He created all of, his, all of the world. He said it was very good and then he took the Sabbath day, ceased from his works, declared it holy, thereby declaring that all that he done, had done was sanctified. And Adam and Eve, when they were originally created, would be able to live in that restful state of the world that God had made that was blessed and holy. They, of course, fell into sin. And following their sin, sin just cascaded into every heart and every human being. But rest was still offered. It was offered to Israel in the promised land that they were offered to enter into should they trust God and obey Him and follow Him. And then, of course, they failed, and Joshua led Israel into the land, but that wasn't the real rest that had been intended because there's still enemies all around, and they're still dealing with their own sin. And then David, when he writes Psalm 95, says today that the rest still stands. Today is still an opportunity for rest, but the fullness of rest still wasn't embraced then. But now we come into this era there of Jesus Christ, the one who offers us to come to him and find rest for our souls. And so, verse 9 of chapter 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's there. It's offered to you in Christ. Israel faced dire consequences if they did not embrace the rest that was offered to them graciously. And they endured death and they endured exile. Well, what about us? If you do not receive the salvation that is offered to you in Jesus Christ, the true rest that he offers, there is no other Sabbath rest for you. There is nothing that remains. There is no other salvation. But if you have embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know something already of the rest that he gives you. You know the forgiveness of sins and the sweetness of fellowship. You have the fellowship with God the Father and then with his people. And you look forward to the fullness of that rest that will culminate in the return of Christ and the entering into his, of his kingdom. And that's why it says in verse 11 of chapter 4, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so our responsibility, as long as it's still today, is do not harden your hearts. Continue that soft-heartedness towards the Lord Jesus Christ, towards his word, towards his gospel, and continue to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that the deceitfulness of sin does not grab a hold of us. Keep watch on yourselves. Keep watch on each other. There is no other rest that's offered to us outside of Jesus Christ. So come to him. Follow him. Trust him. Every day. There's no vacation from this rest. Keep yourself in Christ. It's the kind of church we got to be. We can't take it easy on sin in our own hearts or sin in the lives of others. Not looking for a bunch of sin hunters that go after each other. But it, involve yourself enough in the lives of others that they can get to know you so they can see if sin is creeping in, if you've been struck with that venom and some of your heart is calcifying. Because by God's grace, as you're exhorted, the Spirit works in your life, His Word is active, and He brings you to repentance, and you enjoy once more God's rest, and you strive to enter it. That's the kind of church we need to be, the kind of people we need to be. Let's pray. Father, we know that there's a wonderful salvation given to us in Christ. And Father, we know that our own hearts are, are so wily, can be so deceptive, we can't trust them. And sin is so prevalent in our society and in in even in our own hearts. We can be easily deceived away from the rest that's in Christ. And I ask, Father, that you would help us to be a people who finds that true rest in Christ. We'd exhort one another. We'd play, be playing defense against sin. We'd also be playing offense. Lord, help us to be on the attack against any sin that creeps into our lives. Oh Lord, please make us that kind of a people. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who keeps his own until the end. We thank you that he promises that those that he has, he will keep firmly. What a great blessing this is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.